0: Hello, this is Brighter Evening, a podcast where we discuss fun, food, and ideas to make the world brighter. Good evening, my name is Josh. Thanks for joining me tonight on Brighter Evening. I appreciate you listening. Uh, It's great to see all the listeners downloading. Um, Tonight we're going to be talking about something that's a little new to me. It's not a new idea by any stretch of the imagination, but it's something... I sort of, uh, I don't know if discovered is the right word, but I came across and once I conceptualized it, I was able to find it out in the world. And that's the idea of the ratchet effect. Now if you're not familiar with a ratchet, a ratchet is a tool which will turn a bolt only one way. Um, the, The idea is you pull the lever on the tool one direction, the handle, and it'll tighten the bolt, but when you go the other direction the, the tool slips backwards, and that way you can just move in a small uh, back and forth direction and tighten a bolt. And so, the key thing of a ratchet is that it only allows motion in one direction. There's a type of ratchet that's used on a lot of roller coasters on the lift hill. So, if you think about that sound when you go up a roller coaster, it goes that sound is the ratchet on the track that's allowing the coaster to go up the hill while it's being pulled but not fall backwards. Um, So it's a a safety feature. So, ratchets, of course, are physical devices, but there is a different type of ratchet that exists socially. You can see this in law, you can see it in society, but it's a social type of ratchet. And we're going to talk about this. So the first example of this that I came across came from a YouTube video called Will Security Ever Go Back to Normal? And I've linked to it in the show notes. Uh, In that video, we find out that um, you know, airport security has changed a lot since 9-11, and I don't think that's news to anyone, certainly not anyone who's been been alive, you know, is uh, old enough to have traveled before 9-11. But we don't really think that much about how it's changed and what ways it's changed all the time, right? Sometimes when you go through security, you might think about it, but we we know that the TSA is there, but the TSA didn't exist until after nine eleven. And the TSA's job is to prevent us from being attacked, to prevent another nine eleven from happening. Every dollar that's spent is spent to prevent an attack. And if there is no attack, then those dollars are spent well. And if they weren't if there was an attack or an attempted attack, then maybe we need more money, right? This is an example of proving the negative. You can't really prove the negative here. Well, there were no attacks, so the money was well spent. Um, and that, the idea, right? The more money you spend, the less attacks we'll have, the more safe we'll be. The That brings you to this idea If, wh- wh- how do you reduce security? How do you reduce the amount of security checks? If you stop and think about what we go through in some sense when going through an airport, right? In the early days of aviation, up until the D.B. Cooper incident, if you wanted to get on an airplane, you got on an airplane. There were almost no security checks. After D.B. Cooper, there were some copycats and some hijackings, and so they added in some screening to check for obviously dangerous stuff, knives and guns and things like that. Before that, things were safe. There weren't a lot of hijackings. It was a lot of copycats, a lot of people seeing that it worked. The problem for security for, for that whole time period generally came about as a as a societal thing. And so we had to add in security and that stayed. And after 9-11, they added additional screenings, right? And that stayed. There was the addition of uh, liquid screenings, a temporary measure. It's been a temporary measure for 13 or 14 years now, right? We're not allowed to bring liquids of any, any significant quantity onto a plane. It used to be you could just bring a water bottle through security. You can still bring a full turkey dinner, you just can't bring your sparkling cider through too. A guy tried to use his shoe as a bomb. They added a a check where you have to take off your shoes, unless you've had an invasive background check. There was another situation where someone tried to use his underwear to blow up, and so now they have a a special x-ray machine that lets them basically see you naked. This level of security is very intrusive, and each step of it was added in response to something, a, a perceived hole in the system that someone tried to exploit in some way. Now, what prevented all the major attacks after 9-11 from succeeding was, of course, passengers, by and large. The passengers did not want to die like the passengers in 9-11 did, and so they fought against it. But there's another side to it. If, if you've got this security, and we always add security, because it makes us safer. It prevents more types of attacks and more attacks. We're spending more money every year on it, whether that's, you know, the same budget or the budget increases. We're spending money every year. How do we reduce security? How do we know when the security is ready to go back to normal? And the truth is we don't. We don't know. We don't know when the attack threat has reduced. If you look at an intelligence agency, they certainly have some ideas of how that might be measured, and maybe they could, but there's also some institutional incentives to prevent that from happening. No one in one of those institutions would want to be the person who authorized disabling some security measure, turning it away, turning it off, and then having an attack. Plus, like most institutions, there's a lot of inertia and desire to keep things, if not as they are, similar to how they are, so that People can continue their jobs and things, so we can never reduce security. It can only get stronger. In some sense, it can only get more invasive. There are some programs I talked about, you know, the trusted traveler type programs in um, in the eighth episode, talking about um, you know traveling by airplane. But those those programs are. They're, they're still fairly invasive, right? They involve a background check. There is the, the searches at the border that are more invasive than they have been in the past because of uh, you know technology that we carry with us. So if, if security can only turn in one direction, that's a ratchet. That line of thinking is a ratchet. And like I said, I, I got thinking about this because of, of that video. Um, and it was an interesting thought to me. So, are there other things that are set up as a ratchet? You know that the idea of a ratchet stuck out in my head. I think that the the host of that video actually used the term, and I was reading about um, some international copyright rules, specifically the Berne Convention. It was a discussion online, and so this wasn't like primary sources or, or even something like Wikipedia. This is just people talking um, but the Berne Convention on copyrights is an international Agreement on copyrights, and the uh, Berne Convention is there to make copyrights similar across many countries the countries that joined the Berne Convention signed in burn switzerland that 's where the name comes from so this Bern Convention requires synchronization; they all have to meet some minimum standard for a long time. the United States didn't want to join the Bern Convention there was Another copyright convention that the United States was a party to, um, because we had certain laws we didn't want to go along with about how copyrights were uh, put into place and things like that. But eventually, we chose to join it. And once you join the Bern Convention, it's actually very difficult to leave. Right? It's kind of a one-way thing. It's that that in and of itself is a bit of a ratchet. Um, it's certainly very difficult to change, because it's difficult to leave because you've made laws in your country to comply with the Bern Convention. It's difficult to change because it requires all of the parties to the convention to go along with the change. Now you are required to synchronize to a minimum in the Bern Convention but you're not required to stay at that minimum. You can go higher, which means if there's a minimum copyright of the author's life plus 25 years on a particular type of uh, content, say a book or a song or something like that, or a motion picture, then you have to have at least the author's life plus 25 years. But you could make it the author's life plus 50 years or 100 years. And in some sense, if your country is producing those sort of copyrighted works, having them come out of copyright into the public domain where they go for the public good, Um, could deprive you of uh, economic money, right, economic activity, because of the the fact that this is no longer being sold. It's in the public domain, and it, in turn, will deprive you of tax revenue. So you may be putting yourself at a disadvantage. And copyright is something I really want to talk about in a future episode, and, and kind of the whole purpose behind copyright and the direction that things are going. Um, So that's something to listen for. But this whole thing, right, you can increase your copyright term, but it's very difficult to decrease your copyright term, even for future works. Even 20 years out, saying, well, in 20 years, works that are created will now have a 30-year shorter copyright term or something. Uh, That's very difficult to do. It's a ratchet. When I read about this, the person, you know, or people that I was reading didn't necessarily use the term ratchet but the idea of a ratchet kind of popped up in my head again, and I started thinking about this. I started wondering how common are ratchets in society. And it turns out, if you look, they're pretty common. Um, They can happen on a small scale, they can happen on a large scale. So there's a whole bunch of them, um, and I'll, I'll walk through some of these, and then we'll talk about what it means. that that these ratchets exist, and what we should do about it, and and how they end. So a really common one is with leases. Um, Each year, lease renewals will come up, and generally they're going to be written, especially in commercial leases, to compare to the market value. In general, when you renew your lease, you're going to look at what's going on in the market and raise or lower rent accordingly. Um, The landlord is very unlikely to reduce your rent, and there's a lot of contracts that ensure they won't. That is a lease ratchet. It's actually called that. And the way that ratchet is going to work, you're going to either, um, you know, not reduce it ever, it'll never go down, or it'll never go down below the initial uh, lease rate. So if you're in a volatile market, that gives a landlord some predictability. And you could argue that there is some level of predictability for the, the tenant, but I think that really benefits the landlord more. But it's definitely a ratchet, right? Prices can only go one direction. Um, another example is with government agencies. The Department of Homeland Security was created after 9-11. I don't think there's any chance that the Department of Homeland Security will be dissolved. right? They moved a lot of agencies under Homeland Security. Some may get moved out. Right? There's a move right now to move um, Secret Service back to Treasury. But in general, it's much easier to create an agency than it is to shrink it. Um, what happens is there's a need for a new agency, and if you go read some of the links uh, that are in the show notes, you'll see they talk about um, the International Monetary Fund as an example of this. Um, you know, there there's definitely some bias in some of the articles you read about these sort of things, so just be aware of that going into it. But the the idea is there, right? It makes sense. An agency is created when there's a need. When that need is gone, if you're running the agency or working at the agency, would you rather be dissolved and have to find a new job? Or would you rather find a new need to go solve, right? A new problem that you need to solve? Most places are going to go do that. If you expand the size of government agency, typically that government agency is not going to shrink down. It's going to make itself essential in some way, get people to start relying on it, and in whatever way that is. And then it gets hard to reduce the size, reduce the number of agencies. And because that's difficult, it's difficult for governments to shrink they only grow in fact if you've ever looked at how government workforces are typically shrank at least in the united states it's typically through attrition they put in a hiring freeze and then they don't replace people when they retire and then eventually you know the agency will shrink through attrition rather than shrinking through your typical means of um you know Realizing that something is no longer economically viable, right? That's that's what happens in a private company. People definitely try in private companies to maintain their size and growth, and um, you know, number of divisions and things, number of people reporting to them. But at some point, if the the company is not able to be profitable because it's it's employing people to do things that don't need to be done, the company is going to have to reduce that and. There's some some great works out there that kind of talk about you know this idea of I guess layoffs and when they are and aren't appropriate and I I don't want to come off as sounding like I'm uh, pro layoffs in in the general case um, or the specific case or whatever. Um, there's you know there's definitely times it's necessary and I think there's also a lot of times where it's done unnecessarily. Um, you know certainly talking to some people and who've worked at at some large companies, I can see where. There are excesses in, in the way that that's done and, and things that aren't really a, a benefit to the company or a benefit to society, benefit to people's careers. They're, they're there to um, benefit short-term uh, profitability of the company, I think, at the expense of long-term growth, at the expense of stability, at the expense of, of workers. So uh, that's an, another topic that's that's pretty uh, nuanced and, and deserves some more discussion. Um another ratchet that can happen in in society is a ratchet around pay. So if you think about it, it's rare that people take a job for less pay. Now you might do it if you're unhappy, I know I have, but it's a rare thing. Most people aren't willing to do that. Um and if you are going to change, it's, you know, it, it's got to have something to benefit you more than where you're at. And pay is typically the the number one thing you're going to be looking at. So if a new high-paying company comes into town, some people are going to start moving towards that high-paying company. So in the Washington, D.C. area right now, Amazon has announced that they're opening up all these jobs. People are starting to apply to those jobs. Um, That's leading people to move there. So now other companies are losing employees to Amazon, and they're losing employees to each other because now they have to compete with Amazon on price. And Amazon, being a giant company, Has a tremendous amount of money that they can spend on salaries of high skill employees. And so if they're looking for high skill employees, they can, they can really compete. You see the same thing when a, uh, you know, coal mine opens, for example. Uh, maybe not so much today because there aren't so many coal mines anymore, but, uh, oil, the oil boom in, in the Dakotas. The oil companies move into town and all of a sudden there aren't enough houses and people are competing and prices go up, infrastructure gets built, um, and and pay goes up across the board. In fact, there's a term for this idea of pay going up um, in in unrelated fields, uh, which is called cost disease, which I'll talk about in a minute. But in general, the pay in a field is only going to go up, at least for a period of time. If there's a large downturn in that field then you can see that companies aren't able to pay it they're not going to hire at that and and the market can drop out on it but at least over a short term in a in a healthy market pay can only go one direction um at least on an aggregate you do have people retiring and you have people entering the workforce and that's the thing that keeps salaries from ratcheting out of control to where companies can't pay them right it's it's part of how as a society we're able to manage this need for salary growth or desire for salary growth against the economic viability of of what people do also you know there's a the the decision to pay a salary has to do with the benefit the company gets right if you're making a certain amount of money a large part of why the company is willing to pay you that is because you're at least that valuable the the idea of the trade off is that you know Investing in you doing that job is, is going to bring the company some level of profit. And outside of uh, Marxists, I haven't heard anyone who has a really major problem with that idea that you're providing at least some amount more value to the company than, than they're paying you. Um, the company needs to have some level of financial reserve at a minimum to stay in business during downturns. But uh, that that's that's part of it, right? And So it, in pay, it gets to be a little bit complicated because of of all those other factors. But if you've got a, a big employer that moves into town and is hiring a lot of people, they're going to start driving the salaries in the market in that field. Um, raises can also work that way. Even if the value of a worker's output goes down, people aren't generally going to accept a pay cut. There are some cases, right, during recessions and things where companies do it and, and everyone's okay with it. But generally, you want your pay to stay the same or go up, um, and so that what what that could mean is maybe outside of something like sales that's commission driven. If you're producing wooden birdhouses, and all of a sudden plastic birdhouses come out, your your wooden birdhouses aren't selling as well. It's hard to tell the worker, well, we had to reduce the price of our wooden birdhouses, so you're going to get paid less, right? That that's hard to do. So the the pay becomes a bit of a ratchet. Um, even a smaller than normal raise will be seen as a bad thing by the person getting it, right? So if a person's used to getting a 5% raise every year, as, you know, cost of living and, and, you know, based on performance and things, and the raise this year is 3%, they might look at that and say, well, man, I've been shortchanged. I was expecting more. So these are these are expectations and things that cause um, pay pay to kind of be a bit of a ratchet pay is certainly a little bit less clear-cut. There's also this idea of cost disease. So if you want to look this up, it's Bommel's Cost Disease. The concept is pretty simple. Let's say that you had two jobs in a town. You could be a barber or you could be a computer programmer. And At first, both get paid ten dollars an hour, but the computer programmers start to have new tools and technologies that make them more productive. And so now, one computer programmer can do the work of what four could do before. So now, they're able to put more out, sell it into the market, and they could be paid as much as $40 an hour at the same level of profitability. Meanwhile, the barbers are still making $10 an hour, and they're not getting significantly more productive from the new technology. So, what happens? Well, if you've got some person who's kind of 50-50 on which they want to do, they're going to look at the pay, and they're going to go be a computer programmer. Uh, Of course, we're assuming that everyone's got the skills and everything to to make these sort of decisions. And on an individual case, that's not true, but in aggregate, it is true, right? People do train and and find jobs that are better paying among skills that they have or want to develop. And so, in order to have enough barbers, the barbers have to be paid more, which means the cost of going to the barbershop needs to go up to compensate. So this is an interesting form of ratchet where uh, prices moving one direction or costs moving in one direction in, in an unrelated field can cause it to ratchet in another field. Um, and so you kind of see this, this thing where, you know, as, as costs go up, you have a, a ratchet in place. Baumol's cost disease is really interesting. And if you start looking at, um, Looking around and, and look into it, you'll find that it's a pretty interesting uh, concept, and it, it explains some of the high costs we see for things that used to be cheaper, but not all of them. Uh, in particular, you know, if you look at um, healthcare and higher education, the, the two things have been growing much faster than the uh, economy overall, right? Their, their percentage of GDP has been growing quite rapidly compared to anything else or you could look at it as the cost of services in those fields have gone up faster than the cost of anything else, right? They've been growing faster than the rate of inflation. Those ones aren't really well dis- explained or described by um, Bromel's cost disease. In fact, uh, you, know, you, can, you can see where in healthcare they've been trying to cut costs by having nurse practitioners and PAs that are less expensive to train, less expensive to pay come in and do the jobs that doctors have traditionally done. Same thing in education. There's a lot more adjunct professors than there's ever been. And that's, again, a cost-saving measure to try to keep costs under control. So outside of those cases, it does explain some really interesting things, and it's something worth looking into. Um, but we can get back to some of the other ratchet things. Um, company production is a really interesting one. This is true whether it's a knowledge uh, company or, or a factory. Once you've invested in a factory, or in the case of, uh, say, a software company, they've created a feature, it's really hard to remove it because it's already been paid for. So if you build a new factory to produce Frisbees because you've got a huge demand for Frisbees, Frisbees stop selling really well, it's hard to turn that factory off. You've already paid for it. You've already staffed it up. You've already trained people on it. So maybe you produce more Frisbees cheaply, or maybe you start producing something else there. But once you start um, building the infrastructure to reach a certain level of production, reducing that becomes much more difficult. And this is an interesting thing when you start looking at uh, cloud technologies, because in cloud technologies, the cloud service providers, and the, the big ones are Amazon, Google, and Microsoft, um, but there are a number of others out there. Um, it, it, well, I guess there is one other one that I should mention, which is Ali Cloud. They're also big, um, but but not in the West. Once you've they they invest in all of the infrastructure and they sell it um, as as you use it and so it is actually possible in that case to be able to scale up your production in the case of technology right the the number of people hitting a website or using an app and then scale it back down based on demand um, it's a very interesting economic development if you think about it in those terms but outside of a uh, kind of an industrial innovation like that, right, where there's a business innovation that allows that to happen. You build something, you own it, and something's got to happen with it. If you eventually can't manage to, to make money with it, you're going to have to sell that factory and someone else is going to produce with it. So industrial capacity tends to be a ratchet that travels in one direction for a company, and if not for the company, for the community. Um, I also think of group membership is something that has a bit of a ratchet to it. Now, you won't necessarily come across this in psychological literature as a ratchet, but it is a pretty valid way to describe the idea. And this comes about in focus groups. If you get a focus group of a bunch of random people, right, that have views all across the board, and ask them what they think about a political issue, you'll get a fairly average or moderate response, You know, at least if you're a fairly representative sample. If you get a group of like-minded people, right? If you get a bunch of people that are, um, you know, pro mountaineering, and you ask them about mountaineering, they're gonna wanna signal their membership to the pro mountaineering community. And so the first one will say something like, "Well, I think uh, we should we should all be mountaineering in here." And the next person will stake out a little bit more of an extreme position because they they wanna show that they're really part of the group. So say not only should we be doing it everyone should be doing it and the next person said well you know what no everyone should be required to mountaineer yes by by the fifth person it's mandatory mountaineering mountaineering classes starting in first grade and you know they're they're going to come up with this very extreme position that none of them actually held at the beginning because they want to be part of the group and sh- signal to each other how much they like in this case mountaineering but you could easily put this into a political concept right And so this becomes a sort of a a social ratchet where you start clicking in one direction and you kind of can't go back down because then you've set it to the group, to the people you want to be with, the people you like. And now you're in a bit more of an extreme position and and you've got this pressure to kind of stay with that. And I think you can really see that today in these online communities. Uh, There's some online communities that are a little bit more, I guess, dispassionate. But they're definitely online communities that are very uh, emotionally driven, right? The the term of the day is hot take, right? People like hot takes. And that sort of thing, when you're with people who are like-minded, causes you to stake out more extreme positions and to be more a member of the group than anyone else. And there's other groups that disagree with you that are doing the same thing. And that is a type of ratchet that provides a lot of fodder for partisanship and arguments and disagreements. So it, it comes from this same concept of a ratchet, you know, a one-way thing. In this case, I've heard this concept described in different ways than that, but for me this was a kind of an interesting lens to look at it on. So what is the natural end to a ratchet? I could think of three, and there may be others you could think of. And if you think of some that I didn't, I'd be interested in hearing from you. You're always welcome to email me. Um, you can find my uh, my information on on the website breadorevening.com. So the ones I see, one thing is steady state. Eventually, things ratchet up to a point where everyone's comfortable, whatever comfortable means. Um, you know that's that's different from a government agency to a lease to pay to group membership, but you know, a government agency gets to a certain size and it just kind of stays there because it's serving a valuable purpose and and kind of continues on. And no one really wants to go further, right? The agency's big enough, um, or the the pay is good enough, and no one's willing to pay more now. No one's willing to go quite that extreme on the mountaineering position, right? They they don't they don't want to get out the guillotine for the non-mountaineers, so you don't go that far. That's one possible. Um, Another possibility is a kind of bubble explosion, right? And this is when there's sort of a market-type force on whatever the ratchet is. And so what I'm thinking about here is something like pay, right? Pay goes up and up and up and up and up. And eventually the companies can't pay that much anymore. And they start laying people off. They start going out of business. They start doing whatever it is. And all of a sudden, there aren't that many jobs available to do that anymore, and so the average pay in this field will decline precipitously because there's no there's no one willing to pay those high rates anymore, right? This is the kind of classic uh, market bubble that happened with tulips, right? It was the first bubble, first speculative bubble that happened when when the Dutch were kind of figuring out a lot of the modern concepts we have in capitalism or in, in markets in general they invented the idea of options contracts and they were selling options contracts on tulip bulbs because tulips were seen as very valuable because they're they're pretty cool they're, they're nice flowers and so the people were were investing in it like people were investing in bitcoin a few years ago just buying buying these tulip bulbs before they existed and and trying to get the coolest looking tulip bulbs and they were worth all this money, and this market bit up more and more and more out of control, right? It was a one-way ratchet. No one was going to pay less because they knew it was always going to go up. It's happened in the 2008 housing crisis, right? There's a lot of factors that went into it. I'm not not saying it was just this one ratchet factor, but this sort of thinking plays a role in it, right? It's only going one direction. I know I definitely heard that stuff in 2007, 2006. Housing prices only ever go up nationwide. That That didn't stay true, right? At some point, it gets to be too much, and the system can't handle it. Just like with a bolt, if you push it too hard, the ratchet's going to break or the bolt's going to break. And so, boom, bubble explosion. In 2008, housing prices dropped. People were underwater on their mortgages. It was a bad situation for a lot of years, for a lot of people. In the case of the tulip bulbs, they went to basically be worthless, and a lot of people lost a lot of money. It happens in every bubble. And a lot of it comes from this ratchet thinking, this ratchet concept. In another situation, another way to look at this stuff is uh, if you look at the, the idea of factories or features or products, right, that, that are gaining features, these things get go one direction, right? You keep adding features because you, you hire a bunch of designers and engineers and, and factory workers or whatever it is, right? people that produce stuff and so you've got a talented team of people who can produce more stuff but you get all your main features done right you see this all the time in in the software world with like uh you know note-taking applications that get really good and then they keep working on them and they add stuff to it and it's stuff you don't need it's stuff no one needs right? It's not just noting, it's all kinds of stuff, right? The software just keeps growing because there's a group of people who want to grow it because they're getting paid to grow it. And maybe they're trying to fend off market competitors or whatever. And so rather than saying, you know what, this is actually in a pretty good state. We don't need to add any major features and reassigning those people to do different things. They keep growing this product and it gets to be Huge and unwieldy, and and kind of horrible to use. This happens a lot in enterprise software, the software big companies use. And so, then what happens? Well, a competitor comes out, and they've got a version that has maybe doesn't even have all the features that that you need, but man, it's nice and fast and it works well. This is called the innovator's dilemma. Um, there's a whole book written about it, but that's another possibility, right? you get to this sort of streamlined version that works better and it's nicer and it it checks different boxes. And it isn't so complicated to use because it doesn't have all the features you don't need. And so, that's another option, right? The ratchet, in, in this case, it would be kind of like it comes off the bolt and a new ratchet comes in or a new, you know, someone brings a wrench instead because you don't even need a ratchet, right? This is a nice, simple bolt, easy to turn. So, the streamlined version, the bubble explosion, steady state. Those are the ones I could think of. There may be more. Um, so I guess the the end question is, what do we do about this? Right? We've identified this concept, and it's something I found really interesting, but what do we do with this information? And it's, it's something I struggle with, because I don't necessarily see all ratchets as a bad thing, um, but I do see where they get out of hand and get out of control, and that they are often a bad thing. So, I guess there's a few things you could do. One is you could just know about it and take advantage of it. Figure out how you can create a ratchet that benefits you. You know, I, I don't want to suggest anyone do that at the expense of, of everyone else. But it is an option. I think it's also possible to look at this and realize when it's happening. And knowledge is power. Maybe if we see these ratchets and we realize that they're happening, it's something we can actually make a difference with. I mean there there have been politicians who've talked about reducing or removing government agencies. There are there are companies that set a certain pay rate and they just kind of stick with it and they they believe in a certain type of pay equity and they're able to staff their their company. So there are there are ways, right, where maybe once people are aware of these things, they can be a little bit more proactive and and make changes. And so maybe now you, having understood all this, can be the kind of person who's proactive. The kind of person who says, you know, I see this ratchet here, and it's, it's not good. It's not serving us. So we're not going to participate. Or we're going to advocate to have it changed. Because the thing is, all of these are societal. All of these are things that are happening socially. And that means that they're things that we can change. They're things that we can control. So if we see something that's not working well, we can advocate to change it. If it's within our social group, we can change it. If, if you're part of that mountaineering group, you could say, you know what, guys? I don't think mandatory mountaineering education is necessary for everyone. We like mountaineering. We should tell our friends about it and invite them to go. They'll probably like it too. You can be the one to stake out the less extreme position and people go, well, you know what? That's Yeah, that makes sense. Maybe we don't need to start training kids in mountaineering in in first grade when we're in the middle of the desert and there's no mountains around us. So, as always, you have the power. You have the ability to choose and the ability to advocate. And so I'm hoping that by understanding this, I'm helping you to to have some additional knowledge and some additional power and, and, and the ability to use this to benefit everyone. I'm hoping that by studying this myself, I've, I've accrued the same benefit. And I hope you've enjoyed listening tonight. I really appreciate you sitting and listening to this, and I hope it's brought value to you. This is Josh, and you've been listening to Brighter Evening. Thank you for listening to Brighter Evening. I hope I've made your evening brighter. You can subscribe to us by RSS on Google or Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information on the show or this episode, please visit brighterevening.com.